Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the debate continues over how often MPs should be in Parliament. Only 20 MPs are required for quorum and pretending otherwise to try to force the opposition to accept a bad deal is wrong. One sitting each week is unacceptable, even if it is eventually supplemented by a virtual sitting for a handful of additional MPs. Andrew Scheer calls for a rethink of Canada's relationship with China. It needs to be a whole lot more critical than it's been, is his point. Uh, lots of questions about, and you're hearing more and more of them, about whether, essentially, uh, to boil it down, whether China's been telling the truth about COVID-19. And will we see more discussions this week about a plan to get the economy going again. What we are working on coordinating with the provinces is a set of principles and uh, approaches uh, that uh, can be applied at different moments and in different ways across the country. It's Monday, April 20th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for joining us. Hi, Mark. Always a pleasure. So there's been this debate uh, that uh, over what's the right number of times for Parliament to sit in person and or virtually in the days and weeks ahead. And I know this has been a struggle for a lot of people. And uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, there, there are a lot of factors that go into any type of decision around this. Social distancing, modeling the right behavior, but still having the, the democracy that we have counted on and to have some accountability for the government here. So there have been some strong feelings expressed by the Conservatives and the Liberals. Uh, there were negotiations going on all weekend. Uh, so uh, what is the right number and how do we even arrive at that? This is kind of an unprecedented situation, isn't it? Yeah, I guess the right number uh, will be whatever the number is. Uh, I guess the broader question is, is there a role for Parliament as the as the pandemic goes on in, in terms of holding the government to account? Uh challenging the government on some of the decisions it's making, you know, make, make, making sure that uh, the decisions they make um, are, are done uh, with the benefit of, uh, you know, sunlight and, uh, and debate. So I think everybody agrees there's a role for Parliament. I mean, it, what's interesting to me is the whole debate's gone on, Mark, as I look at, you know, the, the whole world has, has found a, a different way to conduct business. And the debate's going to have to, you know, the debate around Parliament's no different. Uh, do we need in-person sittings? Are, are virtual sittings okay? Uh, what do you gain by having an in-person sitting? Um, so, I mean, you know, it is what it is. And, and I, I, I think ultimately, uh, you know, uh, politicians decide what will work uh, to, to allow whatever relative amount of harmony they can get in Parliament as this goes on. Because I don't think as a... As a country, you know, uh, there there'll there'll be a point in in and there is a point in the debate where people go enough of this already. You know, figure out how to conduct the business of Parliament the way you think it can be done, and make sure everybody's paying attention to job one, which is how to deal with the pandemic. And of course, the opposition parties will make the case that that is job one, and that's why Parliament needs to sit. So, you know, what's the right number? The right number will be whatever the number is. Uh, but I don't think there's a debate over whether Parliament has a role to play. There's lots of questions to be asked. Are we doing right by frontline health care workers? Are, are the, you know, the decisions the government's made about how to proceed the right decisions? What have they left out? What have they missed? So sure, questions need to be asked. And, you know, 
uh, ultimately what's what's the best way to do that can it be done virtually there's been hiccups so far i think you know uh, is it the same i mean I, I ask myself this question if it's a if you can if you can only have i mean there are concerns about a virtual parliament and and technically how well that will work but if it doesn't include everybody and some people are excluded because of, of technical reasons, I'm not sure how that's a whole lot different than, than a parliament that only has 30 MPs or 27 MPs sitting at any given time. Not everybody is going to have a chance to play a role uh, all the time, and I think that's where we are. That's the reality of today. Yeah, and that is an interesting dynamic because you can argue, okay, well, as long as everybody, every party's represented, you can do a scaled-down version of parliament, but at the same time, in theory... Every MP is elected to represent his or her constituents, and and every MP has a right to be part of the process. Uh, it, it's not just about their party being represented, it's their constituents that need to be represented, right? Yeah, fair enough, but unless all 338 of them are sitting in the House of Commons, uh, and, they, and they decide, even, even the conversation around in-person sittings that the Conservatives are having, they want three times a week, uh, they still want it three times a week with a reduced number of yeah. MPs. 30 or so MPs. So uh, over over the course of time, I suppose every single member of parliament will get input at some point, but not every member of parliament is going to have a role to play uh, all the time. And, th- and that's true when parliament, even sure. when 338 parliamentarians are, are sitting in normal times, uh, they're, they're not always front and center of, of that day's news or that day's debate, yeah. although they're constantly in touch with their constituents and so on, and, and they're present uh, or supposed to be present for what's happening. But in, in this new configuration, uh, a whole lot of MPs will not be seen or heard uh, by anybody other than their constituents when they let them know what they're working on and other things. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess there's a, a small distinction to be made between a situation where MPs choose not to go to the House because they've they've decided they have other work to do or their party is well represented and where they can't get uh, to be part of it because of some logistical impediment, right? Those, right. those are different things. Yeah, the, and, point, the point I'm making is that if you're having trouble connecting from a remote riding because exactly. of technology, uh are the odds a whole lot? Well, then maybe you're, it's up to your party to say, okay, we won't be able to hear from this MP in virtual sitting. So if there's going to be one in-person sitting a week, let's make sure those people who can't connect virtually are part of that process. Yeah. But it still means you bring people into Ottawa from far-flung regions. Uh, uh, for how long? I, I'm not sure. I think they got there's lots of things that still have to be worked to, yeah. out of, uh, with this in, in both models. But uh, the bottom line is Parliament should be heard in some form, and I think uh, that's a benefit to all Canadians. Another point that Andrew Scheer, the interim Conservative leader, has been raising is that Canada now should rethink its relationship with China because of the pandemic. What exactly does that mean? What, what is he saying our relationship should evolve to? I'm not sure at this point, but it needs to be a whole lot more um, critical than it's been, is his point. Uh, lots of questions about, and you're hearing more and more of them, about whether, essentially, you know, to boil it down, whether China's been telling the truth about COVID-19 uh, from the outset of the outbreak in terms, uh, you know, we, we know now that they've rised, uh, revised by 50% more the number of deaths in Wuhan. Uh, there are lots of questions now about how, you know, how the outbreak uh, really began in China and what we were told, what we haven't been told. And I think the challenge for 
you know, redefining the relationship is, again, uh, on the one hand, there's a pandemic and we have lots of questions about China's role. On the other hand, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, we have Canadians being held in China. We have a, a, an economic relationship with China. And uh, fast forward to today, uh, during the pandemic, we have, you know, Canadian diplomats still, uh, you know, trying to procure uh, protective equipment from China as all this goes on. So, uh, I, I will want to hear more from Andrew Shearer about what what does he mean by reassess the relationship? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean starting to cut off relationships with China? Trying to do, do we uh, deal differently with them on trade? So, lots of questions to be asked. But uh, and the Prime Minister will be compelled to say more, and maybe that's what will happen if we get a House of Commons sitting, and you know it will. There'll be lots of questions about. Uh, what is, you know, how should the Canadian government be dealing with China and should we be more critical of the role they've played uh, beyond what Justin Trudeau has said, look at those are questions for after we, we get through the pandemic. There'll be lots of time to point fingers or ask questions about everybody's role. Are we going to see more discussion this week uh, about getting uh, businesses going again, getting the economy started again? Uh, are we going to see more uh, of a window onto the government's plans in this area, even if we don't have a firm timetable? I think so. Uh, it would be the sort of natural course of events. I mean, we continue to see, uh, you know, large case numbers reporting out of uh, Ontario and Quebec, and yet we're seeing, you know, dwindling case numbers. In some cases, uh, no new cases for a couple of days in a row, is, uh, row in some provinces. So, um, sure, there's going to be a there's going to be a, a growing debate about when is the right time to reopen the economy and how to do it. And I think so far the prime minister has made it clear about how he thinks it needs to happen. It needs to happen putting the science first, and we need to have a couple of things in place uh, before anything can be reopened. That is uh, some robust. Uh, testing for if and when a second wave comes, and you know, and it, that's a fairly compelling argument. I think when you hear it, look, if we we reopen too soon and and the infection spreads again and COVID nineteen is back in a big way, what have the last three or four or five months been about? If it's back as bad as it was, uh, so yeah, you're going to hear more debate, but uh, uh, it's a little different in this country than the United States. I mean, that's the the closest comparator, I guess, and that's a raging debate there about about reopening. Here, there seems to be a, uh, I, I guess, a, a lot more alignment, Mark, that I'm hearing from, you know, health health leaders and political leaders across the country is that everybody seems to be saying, you know, we'll, we'll take our cues from the science uh, to decide when it's time to start, you know, slowly reopening. Yeah, there's a lot of caution for sure. Um, we'll see if if more information or more planning becomes evident in the in the days ahead. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Always good to talk to you, Mark. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. We're seeing the numbers trend in the right direction, so we need to keep doing what we're doing and keep being extremely careful. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Matt Gurney argues strict COVID-19 travel restrictions could prove the tipping point for many Canadians. Gurney writes, Travel restrictions are already popping up inside the country, something that would have seemed incredible not long ago. Quebec is turning back Ontarians at checkpoints. Some Indigenous bands have closed themselves off. Some mayors in Ontario's cottage country are urging their seasonal visitors to stay in their primary residence. Every reasonable person recognizes the danger of the pandemic 
But if this is going to grind on, we need to find ways to solve problems that allow people to live their lives, whether in city parks or on their own properties. In the Toronto Star, Robin Sears calls for plain speaking on public health. Sears writes, Too many public health officials hide behind jargon, incomprehensible statistics, and, on the one hand, on the other hand, presentations. Political bosses may want to sugarcoat or even resist tough measures. The senior medical officers of health in every jurisdiction must not be muzzled by weak-kneed politicians. They must be able to tell tough truths and admit when they have made mistakes that need course correction. In the Globe and Mail, Kevin Krausert argues Ottawa's plan for oil and gas helps in this crisis, but a new energy future must be the bigger goal. Krausert writes, The pandemic has merely accelerated the disruption that was already occurring in Canada's oil and gas sector. With climate change becoming a significant issue, we've long needed a new vision and a plan for the future of energy in Canada, one in which oil and gas are part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Financial support is needed to help companies pivot if they can. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be holding his daily briefing to Canadians again today. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, there's still one major group of Canadians awaiting more details about a possible economic program to help get them through the coming months. Students. Mark, with each progressive announcement by the Prime Minister of a new economic aid program, with each widening of the benefits for employers or of the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, Justin Trudeau has specifically said he would still have more to say on the fate of Canada's students looking for employment. As the college and university years wrap up, it's estimated that somewhere upwards of 1.5 million students will be hitting the job market. And that's a job market which, for all intents and purposes, and in all likelihood, in the months to come, will be dead. For students who haven't made $5,000 in the previous year, they're not eligible for the CERB. And for those who have not been involved in seasonal employment or haven't qualified for EI in the past year, they still have no chance of benefits. And the government's announcement of more generous Canada summer jobs program, which could last until the winter, well, that program wasn't widened to include any more than the traditional 70,000 positions, which are usually announced for the past five years. So that still leaves hundreds of thousands of students in the lurch. And it appears that the Prime Minister's musings three weeks ago about students potentially taking up jobs in agriculture and in fish processing plants, well, it appears that's largely reverted to the traditional solution of employers relying on temporary foreign workers who have taken up those jobs. So, Mark, it'll be interesting, after so many pointed references from the Prime Minister, to see whether this week he will deliver any details on help for Canada's student job seekers. Thanks, Martin. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, April the 20th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.